Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for coming and welcome to Hay College, Cambridge. We are accustomed at a literature festival to use the phrases uh, light up your mind or change the way you think in a sort of metaphorical sense, and we're about to get very, very literal. In a hundred years' time, if anybody cares at all uh, about the Hay Festival, they might say that the highlight of the first 30 years was introducing more people to the work of our current speaker. Please give a very warm welcome to Dr. Hannah Critchlow. Thank you, Peter. Hello, and I'm delighted to be here today. For the next hour, we're going to be taking a tour, a little journey to explore the very depths of your mind and your brain. And to kickstart the process, I'm going to ask you all to stare at the center of this screen. So keep your gaze at the center of the spiral. You can blink, but do not, under any circumstances, look away. So keep your gaze there. And whilst you do that, I'm going to tell you a little story. So all the way back in 1834, a Scottish rambler called Mr. Robert Adams decided to take himself out for an afternoon stroll in the Highlands. And whilst he was out, he stumbled across a beautiful waterfall. He was mesmerized by the downward cascade of water. He was hypnotized by the shimmering flow in much the same way that you're all starting to get hypnotized by this rotating spiral. When Mr. Robert Adams finally managed to look away, when he managed to avert his gaze, his entire world had changed, in much the same way as when you all now look at my face, all now look at my face, you should see something rather peculiar. Can anyone explain what they've just seen? Has it worked? Has it, oh, you haven't been able to see me? Oh, <laughs> should we start again? Should we, should we, okay, we'll start, we'll start all that all over again. Okay. <laughs> and I'll try and pop up here. Okay, so keep your gaze at the center of the spiral. Keep your gaze there. And something very peculiar is starting to happen at the back of your brain in your visual cortex. By the end of this session, you're going to be understanding exactly what is going on in the back of the brain that causes you to have your sense of reality and for you to be able to perceive the world. So something very peculiar is happening at the back of your brain now, and it's going to keep on happening as you're getting hypnotized by this rotating spiral. If you all now look at my face... Anyone see anything peculiar? Yes, so I'm getting some people, I'm getting, I've got a big head. Yes, I've got a big, throbbing, pulsating head. It's gone into a strange shape, maybe. Yeah, hopefully my head will go back to the correct size and shape very shortly. Um, there was something unusual that was happening in the back of your brain, um, all the way back there in your visual cortex. And by the end of the session, you're going to understand exactly what was happening there. 
That visual illusion, temporary visual illusion, was first documented almost 200 years ago. And it's only now that neuroscientists have developed the tools, the technologies that are allowing us to peer into our brains, to dissect exactly how we form our sense of reality in the world, how our perception of the world is formed. And it's only now that scientists have really got the tools that are allowing us to tweak and manipulate our sense of reality and our perception of the world. And so this talk is going to be taking you on a tour through your reality. And we're going to be identifying how our sense of identity is forged. We're going to be experimenting with our minds and um, hopefully getting an appreciation of how our sense of identity is formed and how our sense of individuality is formed and how neuroscience can impact on us as an individual and also us as a society. Before we move on with some more experiments, I'm going to have to tell you some brain facts, though. So your brain is made up of about 90 billion nerve cells. 90 billion. That's about 14 times the number of people on this planet. 14 times the number of people on this planet is quite a difficult number to conceive. It's about 200 million times the number of people in this room in terms of nerve cells in your head. And your nerve cells look like these blue things here. There's a cell body, the blob at the bottom, and then this long cylindrical structure that reaches up. Each one of those 90 billion nerve cells that are in your brain connects with up to 1,000 other nerve cells to make the most complicated circuit board imaginable. There's about 100 trillion connections in your brain. Now, why am I calling your brain a circuit board? Well, it's because your brain, your nerve cells, pump sodium and potassium ions along that long cylindrical structure. They pump the sodium and potassium ions in and out of the cell membrane there. And that passage of ions, that pumping of ions, is basically an electrical current, if you like. So your brain is using the power of electricity in order for you to think, in order for you to process all the information that's coming in through your senses, and in order for you to process that information to make sense of the world, and then to send signals to the extra trillion or so nerve cells that are in your body that will then allow you to use the power of electricity to activate the muscles in your body. And activating that, those muscles allows you to communicate, to speak with other people, to, to communicate ideas, to discuss how, how we live. And it also allows us to move, to pick up things, to change the world around us through movement. And that's basically, in essence, the point of our nervous system. It allows us to process all of this information that's coming in through our senses and for us to then use the power of electricity to change the world around us through speech and through movement. Right, so I need uh, an, a volunteer for the next experiment because I want to um, do a quick experiment that will show that we use the power of electricity in order for our nervous system to work. So are there any budding scientists out there? I'm seeing there's some had... You do experiments in your school? Fabulous. Can you think of a, an experiment that we could do that shows that we use electricity in our nervous system? It's a bit of a mean experiment. Can anyone come up with some idea of an experiment, a mean experiment that we could do? Sorry? Use somebody to conduct electricity from point A to point B. Basically, you're talking about electrically shocking someone. 
Yes, that's exactly what we're going to be doing. So I've got here an electric shock panel, and I'd like someone to come onto stage to help me demonstrate this experiment. <laughs> I can't believe you're actually putting your hands up in the air and wanting to volunteer for this experiment. No, 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 no. Um, I'm not going to be that mean, actually. So I'll, I'll, I'll take a volunteer later on in the show. But I'm, I'm actually going to electrically shock myself for this one. So, uh, Steffi, could I have a hand just with this? Thank you. So what I've got here is an electric shock panel. It's going to um, send about 20 milliamps of current from the electric shock panel. And I'm going to apply this to one of, the exposed one of the most exposed nerves in my body. So does anyone know where the most exposed nerve in my body might be? My toe. My tongue. Yeah, that might be quite painful. One of the expo <laughs> most exposed nerves in the body is, you know when you hit your funny bone? Yeah. It's not funny, is it? No. It's pretty painful. So um, there's an ulnar nerve. It's, a, it's basically a, a long cylindrical nerve fiber tract, a bundle of nerve um, fibers that run all the way down from the shoulder past the funny bone, the olecranon, and that's where it's really exposed, and runs all the way to the wrist, and then at the wrist, the electricity stops, the electrical signal, this pumping of sodium and potassium ion stops, and causes the release of a chemical called acetylcholine, which then electrically activates the muscles in the little finger. Now, normally, the electrical activity for the ulnar nerve is under the direction of the motor cortex part of the brain, which is a band that runs here. And the left-hand side of the motor cortex controls the right-hand side of the body. And there's a little bit here, there's some nerve cells here which control movement in my hand. I'm going to make my hand not work under the control of the motor cortex, but instead I'm going to innovate the ulnar nerve. So are we ready? If we press start and press on. And you can see now a slight twitch. So if we now uh, increase the frequency of the electric signal, we're going to be increasing. <laughs> That feels quite funny. And now if we increase the current, and this is completely out of my control, if we now increase the current, we're increasing the number of muscles that are being recruited to act on that. And it's actually starting to get quite painful, so if we now switch it off, please. <laughs> and if we switch it on, and off, and on, and off. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. So that's, so that's showing that the nerves in our body are using electricity, this passage of ions, in order to control the movement in our um, body. Um, that electricity was kind of whooshing around quite quickly, wasn't it? I mean, when she was switching the on-off button, I was reacting quite quickly, kind of almost immediately. That's because the electricity was whooshing around that fibre, whooshing along that nerve fibre uh, at about 120 miles per hour. So incredibly quickly. That's faster than an illegally fast car. Um, and, and your brain has really evolved to communicate, to send signals at that speed so that we can think really quickly, so that we can react really quickly. Um, it's an incredibly clever system that we've evolved to have so that we can think. But you might also be asking, well, hang on a second. If these electrical signals are whooshing around at this high speed of 120 miles an hour, if we've got 90 billion nerve cells in our brain and about you know, 100 trillion connections in this circuit board, 
How on earth is it that we don't blow a fuse? How does our brain manage to cope with these incredibly rapid signals that are going on when there's so much information that's coming in from the world around us? And there's a really neat little experiment that explains how your brain has learned to cope with this. So if you look at this, uh, it's Charlie Chaplin. Uh, it's a mask of Charlie Chaplin spinning round. And that's the back end of the mask. So the shadows are telling you that the nose is pointing inwards and that the eyes are pointing inwards, and it's the back end of a mask. But if you have a look, your brain might be interpreting the back end of the mask as another face. So your brain is seeing the nose coming out in a convex configuration. And this is another more extreme version of exactly the same illusion. So the shadows are telling you that it's the one, one side of it is the back end of the mask, but you are seeing two different faces flipping around. And that's because you are used to seeing faces. You're used to seeing faces with noses sticking out. And so you are ignoring the shadow information, and your brain is interpreting it as another face. And that's because you have learned to learn and remember things from your previous experiences, your previous day's life, and that shapes how you view the world today. There's another really neat experiment that demonstrates this. So does anyone know what this person is saying? That's complete gobbledygook, right? Complete gobbledygook. OK, listen to this second sentence. The camel was kept in a cage at the zoo. The camel was kept in a cage at the zoo. Pretty clear, yeah? Camel was kept in the cage at the zoo. Poor camel. Feel very sorry for the camel. We now go back to the first sentence. The camel was kept in a cage at the zoo. That gobbledygook. So that was exactly the same sentence. That was exactly the same sentence, and suddenly your brain... So it's got the same um, cadence as the camel was kept in the cage at the zoo. And suddenly your brain is making sense of it based on your prior experience. So that's how quickly your brain changes how your sense of reality and perception can be formed. How you learn from previous experiences and transpose that onto your sense of reality. So we've just been looking at what happens when something in comes in through our senses, through our eyes or our ears individually. But what happens when you mix information, when you mix electrical information that's coming in from the world around us? Well, what's this person saying? Ba, 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 ba. Yeah? Ba, ba. Ba, ba, ba. Yeah. Now, if we look at this second clip. Ba, ba. More like far? Yeah? So now, they're exactly the same audio, exactly the same audio overlaid onto two different videos. So in the first video, the lady was mouthing bar, bar, bar. The second video, the lady was mouthing far, far, far. But you were listening to the audio of bar, bar, bar. And you can see them two images together. So same audio, depending on which face you look at affects what you hear. So this is known as the McGurk illusion. So 
that's an example of how your brain not only learns from previous, um, previous situations and previous things that you've experienced, but it also forms its perception of the world based on all of the information that's coming in through your very different senses. Um, so we've just been exploring how your brain, which only weighs one and a half kilograms, so it's about 2% of your total body mass, but it consumes about 20% of your daily energy, so it's a really greedy, hungry beast. We've been exploring how your brain, with these 90 billion nerve cells, uses this power of electricity in order for you to think. And it takes shortcuts, it makes assumptions based on your prior experiences. Well, bearing this in mind, over the last decade, there have been a number of blockbuster films that have been exploring, could we ever ramp up our brain power? There's a myth that we're only using 10% of our brain. If that myth is true, so all of our brain, when our brain when, even when we're sleeping, our brain is um, using a very low-grade ticking over of sodium and potassium ions kind of pumping through. Could we ever use the full capacity of our brain? Could we ramp up the full capacity of our brain and become superhuman beings, as depicted in these films? Well, interestingly, you can go to the internet and you can buy some smart drugs. And some people do this. So one in 10 students at Cambridge University admit to buying smart drugs over the internet uh, to help with their revision. These smart drugs uh, are usually prescribed for people that have got Alzheimer's to help with their learning and their memory, um, and also people with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder to help with their focus and their attention, also people that have got sleep disorders to keep them alert. So what do these smart drugs do? Do they open up your mind? Do they activate different circuits within your brain that you otherwise wouldn't have the, the capacity to open up? Does it unlock some mystery in the mind? Well, actually, no. If you take these um, students, if you take individuals that are, that are trying these drugs, what you can see is that it's narrowing down the activity in the brain. So it's allowing these people to focus and pay attention to particular tasks instead of being distracted by things that are going on. Um, so other senses that might be coming into their brain, they're allowed to filter that out so they can pay attention to particular things. If you look at LSD, on the other hand, you see a completely different picture. Now, LSD uh, was made illegal, a psychoactive drug that was made illegal in the 60s and 70s, um, because it can have some very significant side effects. Um, it can cause people to um, kind of have a dissolution of ego. They feel at one with their environment, and it can be quite a a pleasant experience for some people, but it can also cause significant flashbacks and it can induce psychosis in those people that may have a predisposition towards schizophrenia, for example. Um, so it's been, it's been made a, a classified class A, Schedule A drug, uh, and it is very dangerous. But David Nutt, a professor in Imperial College London, uh, a few weeks ago published a study where he managed to crowdfund um, a study. Uh, it was quite an expensive study because they had to go through quite a lot of bureaucracy in order to ensure that they could ad administer LSD to volunteers. And he imaged um, individuals whilst their brains whilst they were um, on LSD. 
a very small dose of LSD. And what he found, so he was imaging the activity of the brains, the, the levels of oxygen that was rushing around the brain, um, and that oxygen was required in order for the electrical activity. It was basically the oxygen was providing um, the, the aerobic respiration capacity necess necessary for the electricity to send signals around the brain. So the oxygen levels are an indicator of activity within the brain. And the very red signals mean that there's indicates a high level of activity within the brain. And microdosing on LSD seemed to open up activity within the brain. It seemed to open up the capacity of the brain um, and, and hyperactivate it compared to placebo, which means that people were injected with just saline solution, so no LSD. And this, this is really interesting, because um, it might be that LSD could be used to help unlock... Uh, kind of unlock people's potential for having a new way of looking at the world, unlocking their circuitry and opening up their circuitry so that they could, for example, um, think about their life in a different way. Their sense of reality and perception would be changed. So LSD is being investigated as a tool to treat depression um, and post-traumatic stress disorder and addiction because it changes the circuitry within the brain. It opens up. Um, the brain so that it almost comes to a, a naive state, so that people aren't set with their set behaviours and patterns of thinking. Um, so for the next part of the talk, I am going to need a volunteer. It's nothing to do with LSD. I'm not going to be... <laughs> I would like to add, I'm not advocating that everybody goes out and takes LSD, by the way, after this talk. This study was done uh, under strict medical conditions. LSD can be quite a dangerous drug. And um, very small amounts of LSD were given in this study in particular. Okay, so I'm going to need a volunteer, somebody who might come up and have their brain read. So, yeah, if I take you, thank you. And if you come up round, oh, yeah, <laughs> very athletic. <laughs> What's your name? Mary. Mary. Thank you for joining us, Mary. Can I have the chair, please, Steffi? And whilst I rig Mary up. I've got a very important question to ask everybody. What can you do with a rolling pin? Very important question. I'm going to ask you to unleash the creativity in your minds to explore what can you do with a rolling pin. So something that you could do with it out of the kitchen, a creative way of using the rolling pin. Activate new circuits within your brain. Come up with new ways of using a rolling pin. Anybody? You can use it as a weapon, yeah, you could hit someone over the head with it. That's right. Yeah. You could use it as a door handle. Yeah, it might make a very stylish door handle, that's very true. Yeah. You could put your toilet rolls on it in the bathroom, keep them nice and tidy. Uh, anyone else? You can use it as firewood, use it as fuel. Yeah, if you're desperately cold, in the middle of January, why not get your rolling pin? Yeah, and hold it, if you could hold it on there. Oh, you could use it as a lovely foot massage, that's right, yeah. So every, huh? You could race them down a hill, yeah, and, and chase them down a hill like a cheese. <laughs> um, 
You could use it, you could roll it over your crumpled shirts to help with the ironing, yeah. So this is a huge number of um, your, your creative bunch. You're not needing LSD in order to get your creative juices flowing. You're using circuits within your brain instead of just thinking about the ways that you've used ironing boards, uh, ironing boards, rolling pins previously, you're thinking of out-of-the-box kind of new ways of using a rolling pin. Um, and you're not using LSD in order to induce that creativity. Instead, um, you're using your natural capabilities of your brain. Now, there was a group of scientists that were in America a few years ago. They wanted to see if they could induce creativity, not by uh, using a pharmacological agent, not by using a drug, but instead they wanted to see if they could use the power of electricity to just electrically induce creativity, the creativity circuits in the brain. So they applied a small shock, a small electric shock, about a tenth of the shock that I was, a, a tenth of the current that I was applying to my arm, and they applied that to the left-hand side of the brain. So they applied that electrical current to inhibit the electricity on the left-hand side of the brain. And they found that by inhibiting the left prefrontal cortex, they were actually inducing more creativity, more thinking outside the box ways of coming up with solutions for using that rolling pin. Um, so what we've got here isn't an electric shock kind of panel attached to this person, but instead we've got electrodes. And we're going to be measuring the electrical activity of Mary's brain. So all those 90 billion uh, nerve cells that are buzzing with electrical activity, we're going to be reading the electrical activity in that brain. So we start now. Okay, this is beautiful. So on the y-axis, we've got volts, millivolts, and the pink is gamma. It's a frequency of electrical activity known as gamma waves. Now, gamma waves are thought to be involved in allowing us to learn and remember from previous experiences and allowing us to filter out unnecessary information. So if you look at the brain waves of Buddhist monks, for example, whilst they're meditating, you'll see that they have quite large gamma waves. They're able to filter out background information to make sense of the world and to, to get their peace, people think. People with schizophrenia, on the other hand, will have very small gamma waves. And it might, that might explain, in part, why they seem to be um, experiencing delusions and hallucinations. So they're getting overloaded with information that's coming in, rushing in through their senses, electrically activating their nerve cells and their um, circuits, causing those delusions and hallucinations because they're being bombarded. Their brain is being bomb bombarded by signals. This green signal here, this is the raw electrical oscillations of Mary's brain. Um, so that's all the different frequencies of electrical activity. I'm now going to ask Mary to blink repeatedly and wiggle her eyebrows. Yeah. And we can see here, we're picking up. You can, and now we stop. So you can see a slight change there. So what we were picking up here was Mary's motor cortex initiating electric signal and sending that electrical signal to her muscles around her eyes and in her forehead, um, causing her to blink and also to um, move her eyebrows. So if you try again. So there's a slight time delay, but we're still picking it up. Thank you. And now if you stop.
And if you now close your eyes, Mary. And I'm going to ask Mary to try and relax, to take herself away to a peaceful place, to imagine that she might be reading a book or she's swimming. And what we should see is an increase in the alpha waves, the red waves, that are associated with kind of more creative, peaceful thought. Mary, mm -hmm. relax. <laughs> I, want, <laughs> I want you to relax. <laughs> um, obviously, it's quite difficult to relax whilst you're on stage in front of 1,500 people. Um, the blue, the beta waves, are associated with focused, concentrated thinking. So, Mary, if you now go through your seven times table in your head or some difficult algebra, or if you concentrate on a particular task that you need to focus on, and you should see an increase in beta there. But again, it's quite difficult while she's on stage. And if you now open your eyes and blink repeatedly again, and that again is picking up the electrical oscillations of Mary's brain and also the electrical activity of her muscles around here as she's instructing her um, muscles to move. Thank you very much, Mary. You've got beautiful brain activity. I was hoping that the creative bit was going to help me finish my book. <laughs> Thank you. So we've just been on a tour um, looking at how our brain is made of 90 billion nerve cells, each one connected to a thousand other nerve cells to make the most complicated um, circuit board imaginable. Sodium and potassium ions being pumped in and out of those nerve cell membranes in order to send electrical signals through those nerve cells to activate the next nerve cell in the circuit. This complicated circuit board changes day by day, minute by minute, second by second. Your framework of um, circuit board changes as you learn and remember new things. And this allows you to make assumptions about your world. It changes your perception and your reality. It helps your brain to survive so that it isn't being bombarded by electrical signals that are coming in through your senses all the time. It stops those electrical signals from just whooshing around in this chaotic way and instead allows you to make sense of the world. But your sense of the world is very different from your neighbor's sense of the world. As we're, as we're now able to peer into the brain with more accuracy and more precision, as we're able to look into how our brain works and how it forges our behavior, we're now able to discreetly pinpoint the different circuits that are involved in activating certain behaviors in us. And so now, patients are electing to undergo surgery to change their behaviors by having an implant of electric shock panel buried deep in their brain. So patients that have had problems with heroin addiction, for example, or depression, or obsessive compulsive disorder, might be opting to have a very small and minuscule version of this electric shock panel buried deep into their nucleus accumbens, a region of the brain that's involved in pleasure and reward. And by electrically changing that area, that circuit board within the brain, you can switch on and switch off these different behaviors. As we're learning more about how our circuit board is forged and how our behaviors are formed, 
we can now start to manipulate and tweak these behaviors. And this has implications for treating people that might have mental health problems. It has implications for students at school, for example, those that wish to take pills or they may, may wish to um, add uh, an electric shock to their brain to kind of get their creative juices flowing. It's got implications for how we teach people and how we learn and remember. And um, it has implications for how we see ourselves and how we see our world. I'm going to finish this talk by asking you again to stare at the center of this spiral. So keep your gaze at the center of the spiral. You can blink, but do not look away. Keep your gaze there. And what's happening is the rotating spiral information is coming in through your eyes, causing a change in electrical activity in the optic chasm, which is then reaching the back of your brain, an area called the visual cortex. And the visual cortex is made up of 280 million nerve cells. Each one of those nerve cells is dedicated to processing visual information that's coming in through your eyes. And a subset of those nerve cells are dedicated to detecting motion. And a subset of those motion-detecting nerve cells are dedicated to um, detecting outward motion. And at the moment, those outward-detecting motion cells are highly, highly, highly active. They're starting to get really tired. They're pumping huge amounts of sodium potassium ions in and out. And just like muscle, when you've over-exercised muscles, your nerve cells now are starting to get very fatigued. So when you all now start to look at my stationary face, all now look at my face, what's happening is those outward-detecting nerve cells that were highly, highly electrically active earlier are now relaxing. Their electrical activity has dropped down to absolutely zero. They're exhausted, those nerve cells. In comparison, the inward, the inward detecting motion cells have got a very small basal amount of sodium and potassium being pumped in and out of those nerve cells, as most nerve cells will do at any point. You'll have a very low amount of sodium and potassium being pumped in and out. A kind of, your brain is always in a low-grade, low-gear-grade way of ticking over so that it's ready, it's ready to ramp up into activity at any point. Um, so in comparison, you've got that low-grade gear of ticking over in the inward-detecting motion cells. So relatively speaking, my head looked like it was going inwards and forming a pinhead down then. Hopefully, my head has now gone to the correct size and shape. Um, so that was a really quick tour through your brain, exploring how your sense of reality is formed in the world and how your perception is forged. I'd like to thank um, AD Instruments for providing this box of tricks, which allowed us to do the electric shock and also the EEG, and also to thank the Wellcome Trust who provided a society award so that I could go and give talks to students in schools and also at festivals like this. Uh, and also the hosting uh, university, University of Cambridge. Um, and I'd also like to thank Mary for her lovely brainwaves as well. Um, <laughs> so I've, I've left quite a lot of time for questions, uh, which I'm hoping that people might have some questions from, from the audience. Yes. Sorry. 
bothered, I'd like to know how many folks like me didn't react to that spiral. And I'm thinking, have I got a problem? I, <laughs> I, think, I think what may have happened is because you're right at the front of the um, audience, you may not have experienced the um, full effect of it. Did, there, did anyone else experience it in the front? Not quite so much. Did you at the back a bit more? Not hit. So some, I think something, some, sometimes it's to do with the lighting of it. But what should happen is my head should kind of throb out in a bizarre way. Thanks. It wasn't just me. It wasn't. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with your brain. <laughs> uh, next. Can you hear me? If um, somebody's much uh, quicker at catching a ball, for example, does it mean that their brain waves are being transmitted more quickly than other people who are slower? Uh, so if someone can catch a ball quicker than someone else, or with more accuracy, um, it means that they're practiced at that motion. They may have practiced it quite a few times, and so they've learned how to react that quickly. Um, it may also mean that their myelin sheath, for example, so you get wrapped around that nerve cell tract is myelin sheath, like a fatty kind of um, protector, insulator for the electric currents. And um, that, that helps to protect the integrity and the speed of the electrical transfer. So people with multiple sclerosis, for example, will have problems with their myelin sheath. Basically, their immune system will be attacking their myelin sheath, and also the oligodendrocytes, which help to um, produce that myelin sheath, isn't working properly. And so their reactions might be slightly slower, or they might have less control over their movement, and the same thing happens within their brain as well, so they might have problems with um, processing information. So, it, I mean, that can be used as an indicator, but very, in, only in very severe cases. But then also it's learnt, it's kind of learnt actions as well. The more you repeat something, the, the faster you will beat it. Beat it. Yeah. Um, you briefly touched on ADHD. How does that connect with things like dyspraxia and dyslexia? And can you actually measure it easily? And so can you use what you've been talking today about as a diagnostic tool, for example? So there are scientists that are working in the Netherlands and also in Aberdeen using um, one of these EEG boxes, um, and they're trying to get a kind of average brain, electrical activity, average brain. And then they're, so they're overlaying thousands and thousands and thousands of people's average electrical activities doing different tasks, and then they're looking at how that might be changed in different um, states, like, for example, ADHD or Alzheimer's or schizophrenia or depression. And they hope that there will be a box like this in every GP's surgery that could be used as an early indicator that there might be something wrong. And then you go to a specialist for a follow-up. Um, and then there's other scientists that are looking at different imaging mechanisms. So fMRI, so the images that I was showing you earlier of the red levels of oxygen levels in the brain. When you're doing different tasks, your brain reacts slightly differently. Um, so there's scientists that are looking at whether you can use that kind of screening as a, bio, a biological marker for these types of um, disorders of the brain. Um, and then there's also some scientists that are looking at markers in the blood. Um, 
to see whether you can use blood biomarkers for mental health states as well. So that's a really exciting area of neuroscience at the moment. So the whole idea is that if we can diagnose early, then we can start treating or help supporting earlier. So that's a really big area of um, research at the moment. Um, I've got a question from a rather elderly gentleman. Uh, as we have sodium and potassium ions running around in our nervous system, and we have doctors and others telling us that we should resist taking too much salt, um, should we in fact increase our salt and potassium intake as we get older? Uh, I don't know about age. The only thing that I know about that is that Peter Andre, you know Peter Andre? Yeah, so he, uh, like, for some strange reason, he was eating something like 50 bananas a day, which is full of, I think bananas are full of potassium, is that right? Yeah. I think it was something to do with bodybuilding or something, I don't know. And, um, and then he's kind of sent himself into a massive spasms, and he's not the brightest chap in the block in the first place anyway, so I don't know how it affected his thinking. It's just a bit catty of me. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, so, so, so him taking higher amounts of potassium didn't really help him, so I wouldn't suggest that you increase your dose of sodium and potassium, but I would say that, yeah, you do need small amounts of it. You do need small amounts in order to keep your body working, but not to have too much. Yeah. Hi. Um, you mentioned uh, Alzheimer's and LSD. Um, could you use LSD to treat Alzheimer's? And for those who were experimenting with LSD in the 60s and 70s, have they had um, kind of less mental issues as they've got older or more? You know, has it, has it had long-term mental effects? That's a, very good, that's a very good question. Uh, so I was mentioning Alzheimer's in relation to the smart drugs that these um, students have been taking to try and help boost their um, grades. And actually, academics, one in five academics at Cambridge and Oxford University admit to taking them to help with their committee meetings and their grant applications as well. So these drugs are traditionally prescribed for patients with Alzheimer's to help with their memory. Um, I don't know what the link is between LSD and Alzheimer's. I think, I don't know whether there's actually been any studies on that. I can't imagine that LSD would be good. <laughs> I can't imagine that it, I don't know. Does anyone know of any studies that have been looking at LSD and Alzheimer's? Highly doubt it would. Highly doubt it would, yeah. And Tao. Yeah, I don't think LSD would be helping as a neuroprotective to help these um, nerve cells. However, there, there are a number of individuals in Silicon Valley that have been microdosing with LSD to kind of help with their creativity in their jobs. Whether they will then be more prone or less prone to Alzheimer's down the line, we shall see. There we go. They're the guinea pigs for that experiment. We'll, we'll find out in 30 years' time, maybe. <laughs> Uh, I was just wondering, can physical exercise uh, help uh, with brain function? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So there's this amazing guy called Professor Rusty Gage, who's at the Salk Institute in California. He did this groundbreaking study on this very question. Um, so he took some mice, and some of the mice he gave access to a running wheel, because mice love to run on the little running wheel, and some of the mice didn't have access to a running wheel. Um, so he let them run their hearts content away, or just kind of scamper a little bit around their cage. And what he found out was that those mice 
that ran a lot had an increased amount of neurogenesis in the hippocampus, which is an area of the brain which is buried quite deep in the brain. Um, there's actually two hippocampi, one on each side of the brain. They're kind of shaped like a curved little finger, uh, and they're kind of about that size as well, maybe. And right buried deep in the hippocampus, kind of on one air ridge of it, one, one little kind of lobe of it, is an area called the dentate gyrus. And the dentate gyrus is incredibly exciting because it's one of, one of the few areas of the brain where new nerve cells are born after birth. So you get neurogenesis occurring there. And the more um, exercise that these mice were doing, the more running that they did, the more neurogenesis that was going on in their hippocampus. So Rusty Gage was really excited by this finding, thinking, OK, so this is really exciting. If you get more nerve cells in this area of the brain that's involved in learning and memory, this hippocampal area, then surely that equates to having a better brain capability. Isn't that almost like taking a smart drug in some ways? That's kind of boosting your brain capability. And he found out that, no, the secret isn't just doing more exercise. It's combining that exercise with social enrichment. So those mice that were busy running around and also had access to a really neat cage that had lots of different levels on it, lots of new friends that they could go around and sniff and uh, groom and, and chat to um, and go and explore, then those new nerve cells formed fully functional circuits or were more likely to form fully functional circuits. So in answer to your question, in mice, <laughs> yes, exercise or jogging is very good for your brain, particularly if you um, combine it with um, kind of social interaction and exploring as well. And if you actually look along the towpath of Cambridge, you see all of these professors of neuroscience jogging up and down the towpath and also chatting to everyone as well. Uh, so, <laughs> so they obviously seem to believe that, that you can extrapolate some of these findings from mice. And in fact, if you have a look at um, people that have been doing quite a lot of exercise and been um, socially interacting with lots of new people, then you can see there's, an, there's a way of indicating that people do get neurogenesis in the hippocampus with this brain scanning um, kind of device. So Rusty Gage has actually looked at it in humans, and it appears that there might be something similar going on in humans as well. Um, so, yes, I would advocate exercise and also social interaction. And that's why GPs um, quite often say uh, to elderly people, or to people that are slightly older, that they might want to go and join the allotment society or something, because then they're doing a bit of exercise plus meeting new people. Um, is there any evidence that um, meditation would help people with schizophrenia? That's a really good question. Uh, do you know what? I have, I've looked in PubMed, which is the online electronic journal, and I can't see any studies that have been conducted on that. And it would make sense, wouldn't it? Um, I've asked a psychiatrist about this, and they said that it would be too difficult for somebody who is in full-blind psychosis, particularly, to try and meditate. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it would make sense, wouldn't it, to try and get people that either have a predisposition or have experienced psychosis, and maybe they're in remission, to practice meditation in the hope that they would increase their gamma waves and that they would be able to filter out um, background information a lot more. You know that hollow mask illusion that I showed you earlier? If you took a room full of people that have been diagnosed with schizophrenia and showed them that hollow mask illusion, they wouldn't fall for it. They would see it as a mask, a hollow mask kind of rotating around. They wouldn't see it as two faces flipping around. And that's because it, it, we think it's because 
they are unable to um, filter out information, and they see the world in almost a more literal sense in some ways. And that's why their brain can get bombarded by information and they can experience delusions and hallucinations because they are being, they're seeing the world in this literal sense with all of their senses being activated at one time, not just their visual sense, but also other senses as well. So yeah, meditation, I mean, yeah. So it would be interesting to find out if there was a, um, a study that looked at that. Um, I wanted to ask, go back to your issue of how much of our brains we use actively, the 10% the, the, the myth, uh, and ask, are there ways in which we can harness more of our subconscious mind? And uh, are there studies of how much of our brain power we do actually use? Yeah. Um, so it's thought that at any point, your brain is um, kind of ticking over pumping a very small amount of sodium and potassium ions through all of those 90 billion nerve cells at any time. So there's a very, it's called a leaky kind of electrical signal that's going on. And it, it's almost like the brain is primed to leap into action at any point because there's that small signal going through. And so that might be why we get that myth of 10% of the brain because at any point, actually, your brain is kind of roughly speaking 10% active. When you concentrate on a particular task, um, then different networks within the brain, you can see when you're looking, doing fMRI studies, looking at oxygen levels of the brain, you can see that different circuits and networks within the brain will light up with activity depending on what task you are doing. Um, so what would happen if we were to activate all of the brain in one go, um, I mean, that's part of the problem, well, part of the worry with LSD, isn't it? In the, is that it can be quite dangerous. So it seems to unlock um, circuits within the brain and activate the brain to a higher level. But then you are at risk of suffering from delusions and psychosis um, and paranoid thoughts, and then to have flashbacks later on. Uh, so do we want to unleash that extra potential within our brain and activate everything? Or do we actually need those inhibitory nerve cells that are in our brain? So there are nerve cells in our brain that actually are kind of sending stop signals all the time. And it's those nerve cells that send stop, stop signals in the brain that aren't as active in schizophrenia, for example. So in some ways, we need to keep our brains not working at full capacity which is why we've learned to make assumptions from previous experiences. Does that make sense? Okay. Is there a way to focus your brain more without using electrical currents? Yes, that's a very important point. Is there a way to focus your brain more without using electrical currents? Um, I think that, you know, going, doing exercise, as we were talking about earlier, that's a good way to get new nerve cells being born in the brain and to keep learning new skills to keep your brain active and plastic so that new circuits can be formed because you're experiencing new things so it's inducing plasticity in the brain so all the circuits can keep changing rather than getting regimented in the same kind of um, pattern of thought. And then to help with your focus, some people report that if they if they're listening to music, that helps them to focus on a task. Some people say they need absolute silence 
and they might even put earplugs in so they can't hear anything. Um, I think the key, really, if you want to focus on something, is you've got to have the motivation. You've got to want to concentrate on that task. Um, so it's kind of making sure that your motivation and reward system is activated in your brain before you, you start on a task. If you want to concentrate on something, you've got to have a clear aim for what you want to do. Make sure that your nucleus accumbens is going to be lit up re with reward and pleasure. So maybe you give yourself a little treat afterwards, and that will keep you focused. Yeah. I suppose that's just kind of sensible advice for focus and revision, isn't it? Oh. Um, we're told that, oh, sorry, as we get older, um, our brain cells die off. Um, so is there any way that we can reverse this process um, so that we grow more brain cells to stop that process as we get older? Um, so yeah, again, it's kind of the exercise and the exploring new ideas and interacting with new people and keeping, rather than just getting regimented into a set pattern a set way of thinking, making sure that your circuit board can change and adapt by giving it new sensory information for it to kind of almost feed off. Yeah. So, yeah, go, going... There was um, a lady who had been diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's dementia, and um, she, she was also a, a medical doctor who specialised in Alzheimer's before before she retired. And so she used to make sure that she went for a walk every day, but she walked a completely different route each time. She didn't have a map with her, so she kind of got lost and that she had to navigate her way around. She would always make sure that every single day she was talking to a new person in the street that she hadn't spoken to before. Um, and then she would also try and eat healthily for her brain, but also her body. Um, and also, sleep is incredibly important as well, because it helps to consolidate um, memories, new laid-down memories um, that you've experienced. So one thing that you can really do to help your brain health is to make sure that you get enough sleep. So as you learn a new thing, you get a connection, a new connection forms from one nerve cell to another nerve cell, a new connection forms via a thing called a dendritic spine. This is where the majority of connections form. This little dendritic spine comes out. Uh, it's like a little worm as you learn something, and the hypothesis is, as you remember that thing, as you consolidate that thing that you've learned, as you go over that thing that you've learned again and again, it becomes a stable connection, which looks, instead of like a little wriggly worm, it looks like a mushroom with a big bulbous head, and then it's got a lot of um, receptors, memory receptors on it, and proteins that are clustered round that help um, kind of anchor in that electrical signal and cement that connection in your brain. And sleep helps to reinforce that um, uh, kind of stable mushroom-shaped dendritic spine, rather than it reverting to this very dynamic little worm that could just break free. Yeah. I think we've got one more question, maybe? Yeah. Um, as a physiotherapist working in brain injury, um, we're always um, educated around neuroplasticity and looking at your functional MRI scans and seeing the effect of LSD. Um, what effect would and are there any new effects of medication on neuroplasticity 
within that area. Yes, so this is exactly why microdosing of LSD is a really interesting potential for depression and um, addiction and post-traumatic stress disorder. Because instead of getting um, set in that pattern of thinking, you're opening up the neuroplasticity, and so you're allowing new ways, new behaviors to be forged through opening up the different circuits within your brain. So that's why LSD is quite interesting. But again, I'm um, saying that you've got, to be, you've got to take it under medical kind of supervision rather than just willy-nilly taking LSD. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the final question. So thank you very much. I hope that was an exciting tour of the brain. <laughs>